Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from AntiWar.com. This is Anti-War News for Wednesday, February 8th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of AntiWar.com today. President Biden delivered his State of the Union address on Tuesday night, and he said that beating China should unite all of us. So he didn't, you know, discuss foreign policy very much, but he did mention a few things about China. Uh, He said that winning the competition with Beijing should, you know, unite everybody. He said, quote, before I came to office, the story was about how the People's Republic of China was increasing its power and America was falling in the world. Not anymore, end quote. Uh, He insisted that he made clear to Chinese President Xi Jinping that he seeks competition and not conflict. But the president said that he makes no apologies for the fact that the U.S. was investing in what he called industries that will define the future that China wants to dominate. He's saying they want to dominate all these industries. And I just had to mention that part of President Biden's strategy to compete with China, you know, it's not just investing more in the U.S., it's also through sanctions, pretty tough sanctions that he has been implementing, aiming to cripple China's semiconductor industry. And one important point about this is it's not just him implementing sanctions, he's also pressuring other countries to join in on the economic campaign against China, including Japan and the Netherlands, because they have... uh, this technology that China needs to make certain types of semiconductors, uh, and he's been pressing them, and it looks like the U.S. is making a deal with Japan and the Netherlands that they're going to limit their exports to China. Uh, So in this speech, Biden said that to compete with China, the U.S. was, quote, investing in our alliances and working with our allies to protect our advanced technologies so they're not used against us. End quote. He also said the U.S. is modernizing its military. And the address, of course, came a few days after the U.S. shot down a Chinese balloon over the Atlantic Ocean. After it passed through the United States, Beijing insists that it was a weather balloon, while Washington says it was a spy balloon. Secretary of State Antony Blinken canceled his trip to China over the incident. So Biden said, quote, make no mistake, as we made clear last week, if China threatens our sovereignty, We will act to protect our country, and we did. And let's be clear, winning the competition with China should unite all of us, end quote. So the president made very little mention of the war in Ukraine besides these platitudes about standing up for vague principles. He said, quote, Putin's invasion has been a test for the ages, a test for America, a test for the world. Would we stand for the most basic of principles, end quote? He also recognized that the Ukrainian ambassador was there, but he did not say her name. And looking in the speech, you know, so the White House always puts out the speech like right beforehand, the prepared remarks in the speech. It didn't say her name. And then when he was reading it, you know, he seemed confused, like he expected her her name to be there and he didn't know it off the top of his head. So, yeah, I mean, I thought it was interesting how little he mentioned Ukraine, didn't mention any specifics about aid or didn't, uh, you know, He did say, you know, to the ambassador that we're going to stand with you for as long as it takes. But I mean, it was a pretty long speech uh, and very little was focused on foreign policy. 
And he closed the speech by saying, may God protect our troops, but he did not mention any of the wars that they're fighting in the Middle East, uh, in Iraq, Syria, in Yemen, or in uh, over in East Africa, in Somalia. Uh, so, yeah, just such little focus on foreign policy, which is typically the case with the State of the Union. Uh, in general, uh, it's just not an issue that many Americans care about. I, I would have hoped that you know, you would think more do so now that we're on the brink of World War III. Um, but yeah, I thought it was interesting that he didn't discuss uh, Ukraine much. I'm sure there's something that more to analyze there, but I got to get next into the next story here. Um, all right. So the next article, Russia says that NATO aid risks unpredictable escalation. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu on Tuesday said that that the U.S. and NATO were trying to prolong the war in Ukraine and that their military aid and other support for Kiev threatens an unpredictable escalation. So he said, quote, the United States and its allies have been trying to prolong the conflict as much as possible. For this purpose, they are supplying heavy offensive weapons and openly calling on Ukraine to seize Russian territories. Such moves are actually drawing NATO countries into the conflict and can eventually lead to an unpredictable escalation, end quote. So his comments, of course, came after a series of escalations of Western military aid that I've been covering a lot, including heavy tanks and longer-range missiles that the U.S. has pledged, although they're not going to get delivered for a while. The U.S. tanks, it looks like the German-made leopards should get there in a few months. But, you know, the, the Russia's starting to make some gains on the battlefield. Discussing Russia's military operations, Shoigu said that operations in the Donbass near the Donetsk city of Bakhmut are developing successfully. Russian and Ukrainian forces have been locked in heavy battle around Bakhmut for months, and in recent weeks, Russian troops have been making territorial gains. Uh, they're starting to break through, and, you know... Um, if you're watching the video here, you'll you'll see the map. This is Bakhmut. Remember, they took this town of Solidar uh, about the middle of January. And since then, they've gained other territory closer and closer to encircling the city. And, you know, this is just this is a battle that's been going on, you know, the whole time. Not the whole time, but for months now, uh, there's been a lot of fighting here. And there's fighting elsewhere, as you can see, if you're looking at the map. But. This isn't, you know, Russia's big offensive, this kind of long expected offensive that uh, people have been talking about for a while as they after they mobilize troops and they've been building up troop numbers. Uh, but Zelensky and other Ukrainian officials are saying that it's coming now. They are warning that Russia has amassed hundreds of thousands of troops and that a big assault could happen pretty soon. I think it's expected to happen in February. Um, so, again, you know, those tanks and everything, you know, that's not, not going to get there uh, in time. And Ukrainian forces have been taking very heavy losses defending Bakhmut. Shoigu said that in January alone, 6,500 Ukrainian soldiers were killed, uh, but those numbers aren't confirmed. Again, with the casualties, it's just really tough to know. Both sides are saying very different things, but I do believe uh, Ukraines are somewhere over 100,000. seen even estimates of over 200,000, but again, there's no way to really know. But a lot of them are definitely dying uh, in this battle around Bakhmut. Uh, all right. So the next article here, Ukraine will receive 200 German made battle tanks. So this is from Kyle Anzalone over at the Libertarian Institute. So as I mentioned yesterday, they're going to be getting some of the Leopard 1 tanks and 
It looks like they're going to get a lot. Uh, on Tuesday, Berlin announced that Germany, the Netherlands, and Denmark have agreed to provide 178 Leopard 1 tanks to Ukraine. 178. That That's a lot. Uh, and Germany and Poland previously pledged to send over two dozen more of the modern Leopard 2 tanks. I believe other countries say Finland, I think, is going to send some of them, maybe even Spain, too. So it looks like over 200 German-made tanks are going to Ukraine. Uh, however, Kyle mentions that it will take time before the tanks can reach the battlefield. The Leopard 1s have been decommissioned, and they must be modified before being sent to Ukraine. The European group's promise is for 100 up to 178 tanks, though some of the so some of them may be too damaged. So that's what they're saying. They could send up to 178, but not all of them might might be ready to go. Um, wow. So Reznikov is saying, the uh, Ukrainian defense minister, that th they're not going to get these for a while. So he envisions to get 20 to 25 of these tanks by the summer, about 80 by the end of the year, and more than 100 by the end of the year, by 2024. So throughout the year, they're going to be delivered. And Zelensky was grateful, but he still demanded more. He said, quote, the tank coalition can really give us parity on the battle battlefield. It is necessary to understand that it depends on time and the quantity and modernity of the tank coalition's equipment, end quote. Um, so, yes, yeah, still a lot of tanks are headed that way, but um, who knows what's going to happen in these next few months, you know, on the battlefield. Uh, all right, the State Department approves a $10 billion HIMARS rocket sale to Poland. So the State Department on Tuesday, they notified Congress that they have approved a potential $10 billion rocket launcher sale to Poland as the U.S.'s European allies continue to ramp up military spending. The deal includes 18 high-mobility artillery rocket systems. That's the HIMARS. And these are the rocket launchers that the U.S. has been sending to Ukraine. And the HIMARS are made by Lockheed Martin, and they're the principal contractor for this deal. Um, you know, we see that name when it comes to making big money on this war. Uh, the sale also includes munitions for the HIMARS, including the Army Tactical Missile Systems. That's the Atassums that Ukraine has been asking for. They have a range of up to 190 miles. Ukraine hasn't got them yet. Uh, and the sale also includes the guided multiple launch rocket systems, which are another munition that's fired out of the HIMARS. They can hit targets about 50 miles away. And those are the ones that the U.S. has been giving uh, Ukraine. So the State Department's notification begins a period where Congress could block the sale, but the deal should breeze through Congress as there is no opposition to arms deals for the U.S.'s European allies. So since Russia invaded Ukraine, the policy of flooding the war zone with weapons has been a boon for U.S. defense contractors, of course. But they've also been cashing in on European countries raising their military spending levels and former Soviet republics getting rid of older Soviet-made gear and looking to replace it with new Western weaponry. Um, so again, this is part of the reason why in 2022... U.S. arms sales, you know, around the globe on a global level really shot up because a lot of these European countries are ordering all this stuff. I should have mentioned here, Poland is also going to be buying a big uh, Abrams tank deal. I forget how much it's worth, but I think part of that, the reason why they're buying those tanks is because they sent hundreds of their older Soviet-made tanks, you know, over 200 they sent into Ukraine. Uh, Germany's raising their military spending. They're buying new a fleet of F-35s. 
and that fleet of F-35s is going to replace their their uh, aging tornado bombers. And the reason why they keep those bombers is because they have U.S. nuclear warheads that they keep in Germany. And under NATO's nuclear sharing program, even though they're U.S. nukes, they have to maintain a fleet of bombers to drop them. And the F-35 is going to replace that. So that's what they're going to have on standby to drop nukes. When Schultz's government was first coming in, there was talk that they might want to get rid of the nukes. But now, you know, they, they went back on that, just like they went back on not sending weapons into a conflict zone. Uh, okay, the next one here. The head of Zelensky's uh, party says that Reznikov will not be removed as defense minister this week. So I mentioned earlier this week that uh, the head of the servant of the People's Party, David Arakama, uh, he is uh, the head of the servant of the People's Party in Ukraine's parliament, and that's Zelensky's party, so it's the ruling party. He said on Sunday that they're going to replace Reznikov as defense minister uh, Reznikov kind of, he didn't really deny it, but he said, oh, only Zelensky has the power to remove me. And, and if he wants me to, I'll step down. But, uh, now they're saying this guy, the head of the servant of the people's party said Monday that Reznikov will not be removed this week. Uh, so it looks like the change isn't going to happen right now. So he is still the defense minister for now. Uh, Mr. Reznikov, they say that they're going to be looking to appoint other, uh, other, positions uh including the the head of the interior ministry um but the talk of replacing reznikov it came after this huge corruption scandal that rocked ukraine and several high level officials were fired and reznikov's defense ministry was implicated in the scandal for overseeing the purchase of food and other military goods at inflated prices i guess that allowed people to, to skim off the top and Reznikov himself was not accused of any wrongdoing, but has been under scrutiny since he oversaw the ministry. And I believe he's still denying that they did anything wrong, uh, just saying it was a technical mistake. But Zelensky did hint that more leadership changes could be coming. Uh, he said last week, quote, unfortunately, in some areas, the only way to guarantee legitimacy is by changing leaders along with the implementation of institutional changes, end quote. Um, so whenever we talk about Reznikov, we got to mention a few of his quotes. He's been very candid about the Western role in the war, you know, saying that Ukraine is a de facto NATO member and that they are fighting a NATO mission. Um, all right. So the next article here, more about this really horrible situation over in Syria and Turkey in the aftermath of this earthquake. So Syria's Red Crescent and the Red Crescent, you know, is like an affiliate of the Red Cross. The Syrian Arab Red Crescent calls for the lifting of sanctions on Syria after earthquake. So the head of the Syrian Arab Red Crescent, uh, Sark for short, on Tuesday called for the lifting of U.S. and other Western economic sanctions on Syria following a massive earthquake that now has killed over 7,000 people in Syria and Turkey, mostly in Turkey. I believe right now the number is around 5,000, over 5,000 in Turkey and close to 2,000 in Syria. The, so this is uh, Khaled Hububadi. He said, quote, the evacuation process and rescue operations are restricted due to obstacles resulting from the severe sanctions, end quote. Uh, he said that the sanctions are preventing Syria from acquiring machinery that they need to rescue people from the rubble. He said, quote, I mean specific machinery that lifts the rubble without injuring people trapped under the rubble. 
the economic sanctions imposed on our country is the main obstacle to getting this machinery. With this, we demand for the lifting of economic sanctions and the siege in order to allow aid deliveries and humanitarian actions to be implemented by SARC and other bodies, end quote. So he appealed specifically to the European Union to lift sanctions, and he asked the U.S. Agency for International Development, that's USAID, for humanitarian assistance. And he asked, you know, are these sanctions against the Syrian people, which, you know, that they are, that's who they hurt. So this organization, the Syrian Red Crescent, they operate in government-controlled territories, but he said that they are willing to cross into areas of Idlib that are mainly controlled by Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, which is HTS, that's an Al-Qaeda-linked group, if the party agrees to open uh, a crossing. Sorry, I kind of jumbled that. He's saying that they'll enter Idlib if the party's on the ground, you know, meeting HTS and the other anti-government groups that control Idlib. And, and Damascus, I guess, and Russia agree to open these these crossings so they can go into Idlib and help people because it looks like the death toll is kind of split in, in you know, over 700 people dead. And uh, well, I, actually, it's more now, so I'm not sure of the numbers, but there's a lot of people dead in Idlib. And then there's a lot of people dead, you know, around Aleppo and government controlled areas in the northwest. So in the wake of the earthquake, there are growing calls for sanctions on Syria to be lifted. Uh, the Middle East Council of Churches, which is a group representing Catholic, Orthodox, and Coptic Christians in the Middle East, released a statement that said, quote, We urge the immediate lifting of sanctions on Syria and allowing access to all materials so sanctions may not turn into a crime against humanity, end quote. So despite these calls, the U.S. has shown no interest in easing sanctions. Uh, I bothered the State Department again today because they didn't give me a straight answer yesterday. And they referred me to comments that also didn't give a straight answer. And of course, they didn't give me a straight answer again. They just gave me a very long few paragraphs. Um, but one thing that they claimed is that uh, they said, quote, our sanctions programs do not target humanitarian assistance. Rather, as a general matter, our general licenses permit activities in support of humanitarian assistance, including in regime held areas, end quote. So, you know, they're saying our sanctions don't do anything bad, pretty much. Uh, that was a State Department spokesperson that told me that. But the New York Times uh, says that the sanctions are hurting uh, humanitarian del aid deliveries. They reported it accurately, surprisingly. Their report said that Syria is not able to receive direct aid from many countries because of sanctions. Only NGOs are able to transport aid into the country, but the sole border crossing approved by the UN for aid deliveries is closed because of damage caused by the earthquake. So even if sanctions do have exemptions for humanitarian goods, they can still cause banks to block transactions with aid groups inside Syria. That's something I'm always talking about is how like U.S. sanctions on Iran, they say they technically have uh, exemptions for med medical goods, but they still cause medicine shortages. And that's because international banks and companies are just afraid to do any business at all with countries under sanctions that usually have to apply for special licenses uh, to do those types of transactions. So they don't bother. And this is very, again, this always happens. So, you know, when they sanction these countries, they know it's going to hurt ordinary people. Um, 
And U.S. sanctions also cause gas shortages as they target the country's energy sector. So uh, the head of the Syrian Arab Red Crescent said, quote, there is no fuel even to send aid and rescue convoys. And this is because of the blockade and sanctions, end quote. And then on top of the sanctions, the U.S. also occupies eastern Syria, where most of the country's oil and gas resources are located. U.S. sanctions on Syria are also specifically designed to prevent the country's reconstruction. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said in October 2021 that it is U.S. policy, his words, to oppose the reconstruction of Syria until until there is a political settlement in Damascus, and that means regime change. Um, So, you know, it's just such a cruel policy, this Syria policy, and even this hurricane isn't uh, changing things. And I think it's just important kind of to really hammer this point that the U.S. could help by just lifting sanctions. That's all they they need to do. Um, And then we just have a story here, again, updates on the the death toll. So they're saying 5,434 in Turkey and 1,832 in Syria. And this is as of, you know, I guess it's early Wednesday now over there. Uh, Okay, so the next one here, the U.S. military is not ready to deploy new missiles to Japan. So the Japanese Defense Ministry told Stars and Stripes that the U.S. is not ready to deploy a variety of new missiles to Japan. So the comments came in response to a report from a Japanese newspaper that I went over yesterday that said the U.S. was considering deploying medium-range Tomahawk and hypersonic missiles to Japan's southern island of Kyushu. The Japanese Defense Ministry said that the U.S. was still developing the missiles and that it was too early for the U.S. to decide where they would deploy them. The U.S. Tomahawk missiles have been in use for decades and are typically launched from naval vessels, but the U.S. is still deploying hypersonic missiles. Uh, Not that I say deploying, they're still developing hypersonics and ground-launched medium-range missiles. So ground-launched medium-range missiles were previously prohibited, which I forgot about this. This was in the Stars and Stripes article, prohibited by the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. That's the INF Treaty that the Trump administration withdrew from in 2019. This was part of, you know, deteriorating U.S.-Russia relations is that arms control treaties were being torn up. And the INF banned ground-launched missiles that had a range between 310 and 3,400 miles. According to Stars and Stripes, both the U.S. Army and the Marine Corps, they're now looking at and testing weapon systems that can launch missiles from the ground in this range, uh, including the Tomahawk missile, because that has a range of like between 1,000 and 1,500 miles. Uh, It's usually fired from naval ships, but now they're looking to make it a ground missile because that treaty is gone. And Japan plans on buying 500 of their own Tomahawk missiles as part of its plan to double military spending over the next five years. So, I mean, I, I just covered this because I went over that report yesterday that said the U.S. was considering deploying these missiles. And then while I was writing it, I realized, you know, the Japanese defense ministry, they're not denying the report. They're just saying, oh, the U.S. isn't sure where they're going to deploy them yet because they're still developing the hypersonics and the medium range missiles. But that report just said the U.S. is considering it and they're in discussions about it. So they could, you know, they didn't deny that they're talking about it. In fact, it sounded like they were talking about it. Um, Again, this is all part of the buildup aimed at China. Uh, All right. The next one here is from Middle East Eye, and it's about an Israeli raid in Jericho in the West Bank that killed five Palestinians. Hours before sunrise on Monday, February 6th, families in Jericho's 
uh, Akbat Jabber refugee camp were awoken by scores of heavily armed Israeli soldiers invading their homes. Across the camp, adults and children were confined to a single room in their homes as Israeli snipers rested their muzzles on the edges of roofs and windowsills. Um, I just want to get into exactly what happened uh, in this raid. So locals say the soldiers seemed to know precisely where their targets were. Two Palestinian men whom Israel accused of involvement in a recent shooting. Three other Palestinian fighters were killed during the raid. Uh, They mentioned them all looks like men in their 20s, mostly early 20s. And um, it said that the people they were going after didn't have enough weapons to defend themselves, so it was easy for the soldiers to take them down. So, again, you know, more West Bank violence. Uh, But that's it for the news for today. Go check out our viewpoints. We have one from Ted Snyder. So much for the sanctions on Russia. One from Daniel Larison. Nikki Haley would return to the hardline policies that we want to forget. And this is uh, at antiwar.com, but we reprinted it with permission from the Quincy Institute. Uh, That's responsible statecraft. One from David Warsh, an expert reappears as a ghost economic principles over there. And uh, one from Jacob Hornberger over at the Future Freedom Foundation. What does unprovoked mean? Which, you know, we always hear when talk in the mainstream media when they're talking about the invasion. Uh, and then the spotlight uh, from Joe Loria over at Consortium News, Matt Taibbi, uh, the Twitter files and the death of Russiagate. Uh, but that's it for me for today. Go to uh, antiwar.com slash donate if you want to support us. Like and subscribe to the show on YouTube. Share it around um, and all that. Uh, but that is it for me for today. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow.